Well, good morning, church. You know, as we, as we turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning, I, I have no doubt that at least maybe a, a few of you might be wondering, like, like why are we bothering to take on the, these two short accounts? Because it, it really kind of seems like the same old thing, doesn't it? Paul goes into town, Paul preaches the gospel, Paul gets run out of town. You know, it's like, okay, we, we've seen this happen. Yet as we look closer at the text, we're going to see that for everything that these two short stories have in common, everything that they have in common, Luke is pointing us to a significant contrast between these two cities. He wants us to see a contrast in these two cities. See, you see, while the Jews in Berea are depicted in the most stellar terms, the Jews in Thessalonica are not. And it's in Luke's contrast between these two groups of Jews that we're able to see something new. We're able to see something new happen in the gospel, in the book of Acts. And I've phrased it this way, and we'll take the rest of the message to tease this out so you can see it clearly. I think the main point here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ upends the status quo wherever it takes root because, here's the key, because it demands that we submit every belief to the light of God's revealed word. So given the fact that we're taking on a contrast this morning, we're also going to take on the passage a little differently. Normally, what do we do? We walk through verse 1 through verse 15 in a very orderly manner. This morning, we are not going to go from top to bottom through the story, but we're going to work in terms of comparison and contrast. So beginning with the things that are similar between these churches, or I should say these cities, the things that are in contrast between these cities, and then we will come to the main point at the end and tease out some implications in that. So we'll be moving back and forth between these two cities as we go through the text. And the first thing, first thing that we, I want to highlight, and this is a matter of context as we go to this passage today, especially in terms of Thessalonica, is, is that Luke's account today is actually intentionally limited. It's limited. Paul has much more ministry in the city of Thessalonica than we see in our text today. And we actually know that. We, we know that because we have the book of 1 Thessalonians. Listen to this, what Paul has to say. He, he's, he's talking about how all the regions of Macedonia are responding to God's work in Thessalonica. And he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did you catch that? Paul seems to be saying in his own words that far more idol-worshiping pagans in the city of Thessalonica came to faith in Jesus Christ than Jews. It's kind of interesting because Luke's account isn't about idol worshipers. It's about the Jews. It's about the synagogue. And that, that's not a problem. I'm not saying we have a problem here. 
Because any historian, what do they do? They focus on defining moments and times and things that are happening in history. They want to show us something that's important. And here for Luke, many scholars suggest that Luke is actually limiting intentionally here because he wants us to see something. He wants us to see that Paul's compassion and love for the Jewish people has not changed since Acts chapter 13, verse 46. And you might be going, Mark, what happened back in Acts 13, 46? There was a conflict with the Jews, and Paul said, I am now going to turn to the Gentiles. What do, we, what do we see through here, especially in these two accounts? Paul, in his turn to the Gentiles, isn't abandoning the Jews. No, no, he is not abandoning the Jews in the least bit. He is pouring his heart and soul into ministry for his brothers and sisters and his ethnic people. He loves them deeply. And then what's the heart of Paul's message to his fellow Jews in both these cities? He wants him to see that Jesus is the personal fulfillment of God's old covenant promises to the people of Israel. That's the message. He wants him to see your king has come. The promise is fulfilled. Yet if his audience is going to believe this, he also has to address the elephant in the room. He has to address the elephant in the room. And that's the fact that the Jews are expecting a powerful conquering king, not a rejected and crucified Messiah, right? He has to address the elephant in the room. And how does he accomplish this? He turns to the black and white pages of scriptures. He turns to the black and white pages of God's word. As was his custom. Notice, what is his custom? His custom, we see starting in verse 2, is to go to the synagogue. It is to explain from the scriptures that Jesus Christ, and it was necessary for him to suffer and be raised from the dead. Verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, on, the three, on, the, on three days, pardon me, we'll back up, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to be raised from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting to. It's Jesus. Acts chapter 10, where does Paul go? The moment he gets to Berea, he goes to the synagogue. Luke doesn't tell us the exact same thing here because he just told us a few moments ago, this is Paul's custom, this is what he preaches, and this is how he goes about it. Now, Now, it's kind of interesting that when Paul goes into the synagogues, what is he not relying on? What is he not relying on? He's actually not relying, in, as his first argument, is not the witness of the other apostles. Nor does he rely on his stunning vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ that stopped him on the road to Damascus. He doesn't go in and say, hey everybody, I had this vision. Right? Let me tell you about my vision. No, he goes to God's word. Passage after passage after passage, reasoning with them so they could see what God had already revealed about the Messiah in his word. 
He's showing them in accordance. This is how it all works out. This is what God has said. Don't just take my word for it. That's what he's saying. Don't take my word for it. Open your Bible and see for yourself. Or maybe in this context, open the scrolls that we have here in the synagogues because you all don't have a Bible at your house. In fact, if you've been with us week after week after week through our study in Acts, Paul's approach isn't, is not very surprising. When we first began, we, we, kind of, we kind of stepped back into Luke a little bit. What, what is, how, does, how does Jesus explain everything to the guys on the road to Emmaus? He goes back into the Old Testament and he explains that the Christ had to suffer and die and be raised. We see Peter's sermon. What, what, and, and what is he proclaiming in each of his sermons? The Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised. Philip, when he goes to the Ethiopian eunuch, where is he at? Isaiah 53. And in Paul's own messages, this is what they're proclaiming. This is the message. This is a thread going all the way through the, God, the book of Acts. Constantly showing from God's revealed word that the message is true. As Paul tells us later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. Every line, every word breathed out by God himself and it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. The man or the woman of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. It's the authority, not because we, we, just, we tell you this is what we want you to believe. It is the authority because it is from God himself. But even more, how does Paul go about this task? How does he go about the task? And we're reaching a little bit out of Acts here, but I'm going to show you what I think is going on. Is is it Paul, when he goes about this, he is not asserting his pedigree as a student of Gamaliel. He's a Pharisee. He's been trained at the highest level, yet he doesn't come in and say, hey, I'm the professional here. Listen to me. Nor does he stand in his authority as an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't stand as an apostle either. No, he reasons and explains and proves the gospel from the scriptures with a heart of genuine affection and in a spirit of gentleness. You might be wondering, well, Mark, where are you getting that? Because I don't see it in my text. How if we go back to 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul talks about his own ministry to these people. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become so very dear to us. I want you to see that because Paul encounters so much conflict with his Jewish brothers and sisters you would think that he would start to be cynical and jaded 
and protective when he goes into these environments. And we see him saying, I was like a mom with her baby. And you know how much a mom suffers with her early newborn, right? Moms suffer greatly with those newborns. They love them. They care for them. They sacrifice for them. It's not easy. And that, that's, that's Paul saying, that was my demeanor. I walked with you as you struggled. And I cared. I want you to know who Jesus is. This is the heart of Paul's ministry. And I, I want you to see this because it's not just he's coming in and beating down people with a superior knowledge of Scripture. He has a heart that he wants to see them truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. And what's the ultimate result of Paul's preaching and pleading and explaining in Thessalonica and Berea? We see in both instances, Jews come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. God-fearing Gentiles who are, who are participating in the synagogue are also embracing Jesus Christ. But we see fruit in the ministry. And then what happens after we see fruit in the ministry in both instances? Paul's running out of town. Those are the similarities. Similarities in these accounts. But now let's take a look at the point of contrast. Let's drill into the contrast because it's here where we begin to see where Luke is trying to put the weight of his story. Starting in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. We'll find out why. That's because there's a riot going on in Thessalonica. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Verse 11. Now these Jews, as opposed to those Jews in Thessalonica, were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It's interesting. What's the first thing Luke wants us to know about these people in Berea, these Jews? They're more noble. They're more noble. And they're more noble in two practical ways. Number one, they received the message. And when we're talking about the message here, we are talking about the gospel message that God had fulfilled his Old Testament promises in the person of Jesus Christ. They received that message with great eagerness. They didn't receive it with skepticism. They didn't receive it with doubt. They didn't receive it with bullheaded obstinacy. And as a result, they were willing to find out more about this Jesus and why. Why why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer and to be raised from their dead? So they're eager to hear. They're eager to hear this message of fulfillment. They want more. They want to understand it. But their nobility extends beyond their eagerness because we can be eager to receive a message and believe a lie because we just want it to be true. What do they do? Their eagerness doesn't undermine their critical thinking. It doesn't undermine their commitment to God's word. No, they believe the gospel simply, they don't believe it because they simply want it to be true. Their eagerness compels them to put an incredible amount of energy into the study of God's word, the very scriptures that Paul is citing, so they could properly examine Paul's truth claims. This is, this is the important piece. 
Paul's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming it from God's word. He's clearly anchoring it in the text. They've not heard this before. And so what do they do? They open up the word and they look for themselves. They wrestle with the texts. They wrestle with Paul's argument. And they ask, does Paul's argument align with what we see in God's word? That's what they're doing. So you see, the Greek verb behind examine here is a term that was commonly used in judicial investigations. And, and when it's used in the most positive terms, it implies a presence of integrity and the absence of bias on behalf of the examiner. That, that's, the, that's the kind of heart that these people are going to the text with. To put it in Reformation terms, the Bereans are measuring and assessing the gospel on the grounds of Scripture alone. Or to put it in terms of the early free church movement, they're asking the question, where stands it written? So they're asking. But why? It's a good thing to ask the question, why? Why does Luke focus so much on the Bereans' eager, thoughtful examination of the gospel when the gospel actually bears fruit in both synagogues, right? People come to saving faith in both locations. Well, I think it's because the Breen's eagerness helps us see that the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica were not only cold and ambivalent to the gospel, it helps us see that they didn't even wrestle with the scriptures themselves. Notice what's missing in Thessalonica. It's any evidence of thoughtful, intentional examination of Paul's message in the light of God's word. What is also missing any excitement about God's free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's devoid of both. It's not that they just don't go to the word, which they don't. It's also there's no excitement. We, we see this as we see Luke's record of their response to the gospel. Verse four. Speaking of the Jews and in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Now, now to get a better grasp of this, this twofold accusation. These men have turned the world upside down and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there's another King Jesus. We need to do two things. We need to take a closer look at the content of their accusation and the underlying source, or we might say the motivation of their accusation. So let's start with the content. 
Number one, in many ways, the accusation these men have turned their world upside down is absolutely true. It's true. On the one hand, Caesar Augustus in 49 AD expelled every single Jewish person from Rome. Edict. No Jew is allowed to be in Rome. You gotta leave. Don't care how long you've been here. You're no longer welcome. And why did it happen? It happened because there were violent protests against Christianity in Rome. The historian Josephus tells us about it. That's why. There was conflict. They were taking it to the streets and Caesar's like, no more. You guys are out. And if we align this edict with Paul's travels, it's most likely that this edict by Caesar happened within months to a year of this actual interaction that happens in Thessalonica. It's very possible these people in Thessalonica that many of these Jews have actually just been pushed out of Rome. We're going to find out about this edict once again when we run into Priscilla and Aquila in a few chapters. That's why they're not in Rome anymore. See, for a great many Jews, the gospel had turned the world upside down. The the monolithic religious world of Judaism had been completely upended with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once united families were now divided as some were following the old ways and some were following Jesus Christ. The most foundational barriers of Jewish identity were being discarded as Jews and Gentiles were being welcomed as equal worshipers in in where they worshipped. And on top of it, Jews now, because of their conflict with Christians, were losing their place of tolerance and acceptance in the Roman Empire because what was the thing that the Roman Empire wanted the most was for there not to be any conflict in their regions. At the same time, Paul is advancing a world-changing message. In his proclamation, that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah. And his Jewish opponents knew this, and they leveraged it in the form of a half-truth that presented Paul and his teachings in the most offensive terms possible. We see that happen in our society too. But in this case, What do we know about Paul? We we know that Paul never, never taught that the kingship of Jesus was to be realized in national or political behaviors that threatened the emperor or the peace of the empire. He, He never taught that. No, to the contrary, he taught that Caesar was to be honored and obeyed unless he required something that God expressly prohibited. That's what Peter, that's what Paul taught. But that, that, that doesn't mean, though, that, that Paul is not trying to turn the world upside down or that he wasn't proclaiming another king. He is proclaiming another king who is the sovereign ruler over all things. And this, this sovereign king requires a new set of priorities and loyalties for everyone who becomes his disciple. 
right? Everything changes when you come under the kingship of Christ. New priorities and loyalties. A redefinition in light of the gospel of our personal relationships, of our personal ethics, of our sexual behavior, of our social structures, and our personal ambitions. All of these things redefined. Not in light of society, but of our king who's revealed his desires in his word. So yes, the gospel was turning the world upside down. But if you think about it, how was it doing it? It's turning the world upside down from the bottom of society to the top. It's not an attempt to change the leadership to change the country. It's a, it's a transformation of the citizenry that brings a change to the cities and then the nation. It's a change that happens in each individual person as they are changed from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. That, that, that's kind of change and transformation that, that turns the world upside down. It's not top to the bottom, it's from the bottom up. But if this is the case, why are the Jews in Thessalonica so opposed to the gospel? Well, Luke points us to the underlying issue in the text. Let's compare verse 4 to verse 12. Speaking of the Jews in Thessalonica... And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews and Greeks, or devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Now we go down to verse 12. Speaking of the Jews, many of them, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So going back to the first verse, did you notice it was, it's merely some? Some of the Jews in Thessalonica were persuaded by Paul. But on the other hand, in Thessalonica, a great many Greeks. So some Jews and a great many Greeks respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas in verse 12, it is many of the Jews in Berea respond with not a few Greeks. This seems to be at the heart of the problem. What's going on? The Jews in Thessalonica respond with jealousy and they set the city in an uproar because in Thessalonica we see this massive movement of Gentiles to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only few of the Jews respond. And Luke says it's jealousy it's jealousy. But what's the underlying source of the jealousy? It, it's clear in the text that these, these Jews aren't fighting for God's glory in the text. And, it, and it's not even that they can't necessarily understand the gospel at its most basic level. As we read the text, it's that they're not willing to believe and submit to God's word when it contradicts their pre-existing set of beliefs and values and behaviors. 
Paul's shown them in the scriptures. He's shown them. He's given them the answers. What are they not willing to do? They're not willing to believe and submit to God's word. It conflicts with everything they've held to be true before. And in the text, they don't turn to the authority of God's word to rebuff Paul. They don't turn to the traditions of Moses. No, they turn to wicked men to stir up an angry mob in hopes they can drive Peter and Paul out of town. Charging him with treason. They're jealous. What are they losing? They're losing their positions of prominence in the synagogue. They're losing it. They're being threatened by Paul's newfound influence. They're jealous for their privileged status as Israelites that has been maintained for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're willing to do anything necessary to maintain the long-standing ethnic distinctions and religious distinctions that have been, been laid out between Jews and Gentiles. See, what's the gospel doing? What's the gospel doing, especially here in Thessalonica? It is overturning the centuries-long status quo of Jew-Gentile relationships. That's what it's doing. And that it freely offers forgiveness and salvation to all people without distinction through faith in Jesus Christ. Which means... Israel's promised king is a king for all people, not just one people. And in so doing, what, what, is, what, is, what is being accomplished, to use Paul's terms in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, is it that Christ himself is breaking down the wall of hostility that used to be, be, be in between Jews and Gentiles, and he's making them one new man in Christ. Not two peoples, not two churches, not two ways. One new man in Christ, the barrier being forever removed. And by whose authority has this change come? Well, that's the whole reason Paul argues from God's word. It doesn't come from Paul's authority. Paul didn't discover some mystical new meaning in the text. He's showing them that all along this was part of God's plan. In the black and white pages of the scriptures. One simple text we can go to for this stage. Let's go all the way back to Abraham, right? Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Incredible blessings to the people of Israel. Blessings that God has fulfilled in history, in reality. They have come to pass. But what's God's purpose in this work of Israel? And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
From the very beginning of the call of Abraham, God's purpose is to save a global people, a multi-ethnic people for himself. See, how's the world going to be blessed? They're not going to be blessed through Israel's prominence and power as a nation. That's not how they're going to be blessed. Now, they're going to be blessed by, by the fact that Israel's promised King Jesus arrives and he offers freely forgiveness of sins and everlasting life to all who repent and believe. That is how all peoples are blessed in him. And that's the heart of the jealousy. So now that we have a little better grasp of the contrast that's in the text, let's take a few moments to tease out some practical implications that flow from this main point that we see. Main point being that the gospel of Jesus Christ upends the status quo. We, we've seen it happening in Thessalonica. It upends the status quo wherever it takes root because it demands that we submit every belief to the light of God's revealed word. The first thing I want us to see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a revolutionary message. It is revolutionary. And that it challenges the status quo in every single society on the face of the planet. And, and I'm not talking about in, the, in, the, in like the violent political sense, like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, I'm not talking about those terms. Or, or even the subversive approach of modern progressive ideologies. No, the gospel upends the status quo wherever it is in that, in that it, it, it revolutionizes our grasp of reality itself. The gospel helps me see what is really true in the world. That is the confrontation that comes. Just think about it. Before the gospel comes, before we heard the gospel, we're rather settled with our current life state. Sure, we might want to change a few things about ourselves or about society. Who doesn't? But when the gospel comes, what does it do? It assaults us. Now that's not to say the gospel isn't love and we don't have the love of God in the gospel, but what does the gospel do at the outset? It assaults us with our sense of personal autonomy, our grasp of what is really real. It assaults our deeply held views about selfhood and sexuality and purpose in this life. It assaults all of those things. And it does this regardless. It does it regardless of our pre-existing ethnicity. It does it regardless of our pre-existing social class, our political affiliations, or our educational standings. In some senses, we can rightfully say the gospel is an equal opportunity offender. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That's the offense of the gospel. 
Continuing, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the problem in the world. Mankind doesn't see reality for what it is because they've suppressed the knowledge of God. Our hearts and our minds have been darkened. We think we're incredibly wise and the gospel says we've become fools. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for every manner of created thing. It assaults us. It says you're looking at the world the wrong way. You don't know up from down. Speaking of the gospel being an equal opportunity offender, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. No one. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, all together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not one. It doesn't leave a category for someone having it figured out. It comes to us all with a revolutionary message that there is a significant problem. See, this is where the revolution begins. It begins by recognizing our desperate state and our personal culpability in the problem. We are not merely victims, we are actors. We think we're wise, we think we have everything sorted, we think we can define life and reality in our own terms when the truth of the matter is we're so mired in our sin, we can't see reality for what it truly is. And that's because we've suppressed the truth that are clearly seen in God's creation that at least reveal his glory that a God is there. And it often happens how? In our culture, it happens by either domesticating God to our liking, so he's this benevolent big man upstairs who never gives us a sideways glance but wants to meet our every need and make us happy, or by eliminating him from the equation altogether. But here's the key. The kind of revolution that the gospel brings the way that the gospel turns the world upside down, it's not through a revolution that is secured in the bloody death of the gospel's enemies. It's a revolution that was purchased in the bloody death of our sinless Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And it's now freely offered to all peoples. All peoples without distinction. It's offered to all peoples in the gospel. which is where Paul goes a little further in Romans, starting chapter 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, saying there's a righteousness 
that God gives, and it's not through law-keeping. It's not through checking the box of doing things. It's something that, that God has given, and he goes on to explain, although the law and the prophets bear witness to this new thing. The righteousness from God, how does it come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. Important. No distinction from any person on the face of the planet at any point in history. No distinction. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, but he doesn't stop there. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. What is the only qualification? It is faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. That is the only qualification. See, this is the revolution of the gospel. This is the offense of the gospel. This is the message that turns every political and social system on its head because we have all these systems built on the belief that man are inherent, mankind is inherently good and we, they just need enough education, they just need enough money, they just need enough resources to do the right things and we'll have a great society. And the gospel says, no, we are broken to our core. All people are equally condemned in their sin. Destined for eternal wrath without distinction apart from the gospel. But at the same time, at the same time, the gospel is saying there is a free offer of forgiveness. It's free. It wasn't, it's free for us. It's offered as a gift, but it was purchased through the blood of our King, Jesus Christ. And that's why the call is repent and believe. It's been accomplished. It's been done. It just must be received. That's the gospel. And if you're here today and you're hoping in anything for your eternal rightness with God, if it's anything but this, it's deficient and it doesn't make the mark. There's no doing that gets you there. Kids don't get to heaven on the shirt tails of their parents. Everyone must receive. Everyone must respond. And that's the call of the gospel. And if you haven't done that, I pray today's the day. We, we don't know when we have our last. Today's the day to believe. If you don't quite understand anything, if you want to know more about it, please talk to me. Talk to Ryan. We'd love to share with you. But also, let me be clear, the revolution does not end there, which is the second half. The revolution of the gospel does not end at a person's eager and willing embrace of the gospel. No, our embrace of the gospel places us under the rule of a new king. When we embrace Christ, when we come to Christ for salvation, we are embracing a new king who calls us to glorify him by aligning every area of our life with the perfect standard as he's revealed it in the pages of the Bible. 
See, see, the doing of the Christian life is not about earning. It's not about attaining righteousness. It's about bringing glory to God through our actions. It's about finding joy in walking in obedience. It's not about earning. Yet if you think about it, this is the aspect of the gospel that really draws the ire of the cancel culture world in which we live, just like it did with Paul and the Jews in Thessalonica. After all, we live in a world that's more eager to embrace a loving God as long as his love aligns with our definitions of love. We're all the more eager to adjust, to to embrace a just God as long as his justice aligns with my definition of justice. To embrace an inclusive God as long as his inclusiveness aligns with my definition of inclusivity. See, for the most part, when we look around, it's not that the world we live in doesn't want God or doesn't want a God. It's that they don't want the God of the Bible. In fact, it's only when we recognize this that we're able to see that especially this moment we live in, this this cancel culture society, we're able to see that it's actually based on the assumption that power, not truth, is the way to change the status quo. We change the world by power not by truth. Change the group in power, you change the status quo. And how do you do that? You use your power to suppress any competing narratives regardless if they actually contain truth or not. Because you want to hold on to power. Notice, power, not truth, is the critical issue for social change. But that's not the gospel. It's not what we see when we look at the track record of history. We see that the sinful status quo of society throughout the history of the church, never perfectly, but has slowly been overturned as individual Christians joyfully aligned their lives with the truth of God's revealed word. Society has changed from the bottom up as individual Christians are transformed by the Holy Spirit. First as individuals, then as churches, and then, and then yes, there is transformation that happens in society. Which brings us to the question, why? Why do we devote so much time and energy to our study of God's word, especially here in this church? Why do we do it? Why do we fend the inspiration and authority of the Old and New Testament from the constant attempts to diminish or abandon their legitimacy or to unhitch one from the other? Why do we go through great efforts to demonstrate the truthfulness and desirability and beauty of the gospel? Why do we constantly go to God's word to do those things? We don't do it to exert self-serving power and influence other, over other people. No, we do it because we really want 
We want to help unbelievers find their highest joy in the person of Jesus Christ by rescuing them from their suicidal embrace of sin. That's what we want to do. And we're convinced that the only way it's going to happen is if we lovingly and compassionately and gently confront them with the life-giving and transformational truths of God's word. And we also do it as Christians because we are convinced, I hope you're convinced in this, that we find our highest joy and that we find our greatest satisfaction as Christians when we align our thoughts and our desires and our values and our pursuits with God's revealed word. That is the source of our true joy as Christians. Let's close and refer.